Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In this 2022 legislative hearing, Convention of State's Ohio volunteers make their voices heard before a legislative committee in favor of our Article 5 legislation. The size and scope of the federal government has grown consistently throughout the history with more and more responsibilities abdicated by Congress to unelected bureaucrats. Eventually, states will use those amendments to the Constitution that would limit the jurisdiction of the federal government, support the balanced budget, establish term limits for federal legislators if passed in Ohio, this resolution would encourage more states around the country to join our effort. Once 34 states have passed a resolution, a convention can be held to reign in the federal government and give sovereignty back to our states. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Senator Rooley. Um, we have watched the federal government in Washington, D.C. with size and spending shown by the increasing $30 trillion living under right now. It controls more of the operations of our states and more of our daily lives than it was ever intended to do. The power of the federal government has always been intended to flow from the states to the federal government, but over the course of time, and in particular with every crisis that we've seen in this country, that has reversed to the detriment of our country. This is not a political partisan debate, but rather one of the only mechanisms to restore a balance of states' rights. With over 2.3 million individuals signing on to the petition and over 80% of voters approving a constitutional amendment to place term limits on federal legislators, the time has come for the states to exercise their check on the out-of-control growth of the federal government. Senate Joint Resolution Number 4 is a, path, is a path for states to reclaim their power from the federal overreach that has gradually eroded it over time. Thank you again for your time and concern. We would be happy to answer questions you may have at this time. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. There are questions for the sponsors. Serena. Senators, thank you for coming in and for bringing up this important subject um, and uh, certainly concur with the comments that you made regarding where we have gone uh, relative to power and authority of the states versus the federal government. Uh, one of the questions that has been brought up really for decades now on a constitutional convention uh, is, is uh, being able to control the subjects that are, that are uh, um, evaluated at, at the convention and could it or could it not get out of control. Do you have any uh, uh, a constitutional sort of uh, advice on, on whether that is a credible concern or not? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you, Senator Serino. Uh, I would say that the, we're in, in some respects we are trying to limit it with the passing of the resolution and limiting it to certain topics. Um, and that way uh, an argument can be made that a convention has only been called for certain reasons. But one, of, one particular fail-safe I think we need to be cognizant of is the threshold by which uh, it would take for these for any amendment to the Constitution to be to be uh, ultimately enacted? Not only is it a high threshold to call the convention itself of 34 states needing to pass resolutions, but 38 states would need to ratify um, any amendments that were enacted at that convention, and so. Um, I think we all realize Ohio, or, and uh, even Ohio, but this country is made up of many diverse economic interests and many diverse states with varying political uh, uh, persuasions, if you will. And so getting 38 states would be a pretty high bar, a pretty high threshold to reach. And so I, I would say the fail safes are in there to make sure that it is something that is broadly and widely supported mm. by a vast majority of the states. Quick follow up. Follow up. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, so um, any subject could be, I mean, there's no way to stop any other subject being brought up at a convention. The, the, as you're pointing out, the, the, the check would be on the threshold uh, to be able to adopt any of those 
maybe extraneous concepts that would be brought up in a convention? So I think the first part of my answer was an argument could be made at the convention that if each, for example, if 34 states passed the resolution or something similar that's in front of you right now, we're talking about limiting the reach of government term limits and a balanced budget amendment. And so an argument could be made at that convention when it is called to say that the authorizing resolutions bringing us here are for limited purposes, not just generally amending the Constitution. And so um, you, could, you could make an argument uh, in, in that process and in the rules that would ultimately need to be passed for the operation of the convention that the topics would be limited to just those that were contained in the authorizing resolutions. Okay. Um, now, again, 38 states, you know, for example, something always gets brought up as, oh, this could be a runaway convention where they try to curtail our Second Amendment rights. There's no way you get 38 states, in my opinion, in this country that would authorize and, and approve an amendment that would curtail Second Amendment rights. I think you can do the math in your head and realize that's just not going to happen. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Other questions? Yes. Senator. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, testimony, this sponsor testimony this morning. Uh, isn't there a strong argument uh, that certain provisions of the Bill of Rights, like the 14th Amendment, uh, government seizure uh, provisions, or the 10th Amendment uh, delegation provision could be amended to limit the power and the, ju uh, the jurisdiction of the federal government? And, gen uh, gentlemen, either of you can address that question. I know it's a fairly broad question. Um, I, I would say that I would get back to what I was referencing before. Um, you could make an argument that there are a number of amendments that could be amended to limit the reach and the scope of the federal government. Um, and so I, you could make that argument. But again, you're going to need 38 states to approve it. And so if you get 38 states to approve it, that is that is something that is so widely accepted that it is almost a foregone conclusion that it's supported by a wide majority of, of the citizens of this country. Um, as it concerns the reach and the scope of federal government, in my opinion, um, getting into the specifics of, of any of that's the whole reason the founders set up the Constitution the way they did, was because they were worried Quite frankly, if you go back and you, and you read about the, the first and initial drafts of the Constitution, they were worried about an out-of-control federal government. They needed checks where the states would be controlling the federal government, not the other way around. And so they put this in there as, in some ways, a, a check on the federal government. And you'll recall, in previous iterations of our Constitution, at one point, United States senators were actually selected by the state legislators as a check on the federal government as opposed to by popular vote. And so some of those changes have happened over the course of time. Um, this is something that um, could there be changes? Absolutely there could in instances where there was broad agreement among the vast majority of states that some of these things needed to be reined in. Uh, but again, any in individual incident that, that, that may be highlighted, I highlighted the Second Amendment earlier, you could probably think of another issue on the opposite side of the spectrum uh, where you could do the math and say there's, there's no way there aren't going to be uh, more than 12 states that oppose this. And so um, I, I really think the idea of a runaway convention or something that is, that is going to be inherently um, offensive to the notions of what our Constitution should be is very remote. To add to that, I've always thought convention of states was to benefit the minority party. You have the three branches of government, and even when you look throughout the 50 states, the 38-state threshold, I think, is crucial. I can think of a half dozen states where one or two of the chambers are opposite party, and sometimes the governor's opposite party. So to get 38 states to agree on something, I think can only benefit a minority party that would be in the federal government, especially if the opposition party holds office for 10, 12, 16 years. I think Convention of States is the true equalizer to make sure that the government is for the people and at the people's reins. I, I, I really believe that the 38 state threshold is almost impossible to get to. Thank you. Seeing no further questions, we appreciate your testimony and bringing this resolution forward. Thank you. Thanks.
Thank you. Next, we have uh, Mark Meckler uh, with the Convention of States as proponent testimony. Thanks. Good for afternoon, us. or good morning, Mr. Chair, honorable members of the committee. Thank you for having us today. We appreciate you hearing the citizens speak to this issue. Again, my name is Mark Meckler. I'm the president of Citizens for Self-Governance and the Convention of States Project, and we are the organization moving this forward nationally. Uh, one correction to Senator Ruley's testimony. Things are moving so fast. He said 15 states have passed the resolution. Just in the last 90 days, four more states have passed the resolution, so we're now at 19 states. So our hope and the hopes of over 100,000 people who've signed the petition here in Ohio is that Ohio will become magic number 20. So it'd be a good threshold to cross. I want to step back and do a little bit of history, if I might, and that history starts in 1787 when this clause gets entered into the Constitution. It's two days before the end of convention, September 15, 1787. It's that hot summer in Philadelphia we all know about. The Constitution is completely drafted. The final draft is prepared for signature, and Colonel George Mason from Virginia stands to address the assembly. And I paraphrase, but he says basically we have a terrible problem with the document we've drafted. We've given the power to Congress to propose amendments, but we've not given the same power to the people acting through the states. And then he asks the question, are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose the proper kinds of amendments to restrain its own tyranny? Now, I've said that line in hundreds of events around the country. Senator, I see a smile at that. People smile, people laugh, because no tyrant in human history has ever restrained himself or herself. No tyrannical government has ever decided, well, we have too much power, we're going to give it back to the people. So the founders, the framers, understood human nature. They stands at the appropriate moment and point of flaw in the document. And interestingly, Madison's notes reflect this in two very small, abbreviated Latin words. He says, nin com, which means no comment. There's no debate about this. In other words, the men assembled there decided that this was so self-evident that they unanimously voted to put this clause in the Constitution. It's a clause which gives you, as state legislators, extraordinary power. In fact, you're the most powerful people in the federal government. And when you come here and when you take your oath and you're sworn in and you're given your orientation and they show you where the restrooms are in the committee hearings and your new office, they probably don't tell you you're the most powerful people in the federal government because only legislatures have the power to call a convention, to propose amendments at that convention, and then to ratify those amendments, thereby changing the very structure of our system of government. The president doesn't have that power. Congress was not given that power. I would argue sometimes the state, uh, sometimes the courts take that power. They were not given that power. But you were given that power. And I think it's important to understand why you were given that power. The founders never said, the framers never said, well, you know, state governments, they'll be filled with angels. Those will be the perfect people, and those in the federal government will be bad people. What they said was, we believe in government close to the people. We believe in the elected officials who have to go live among their constituents. And frankly, all of them were you. They sat you know, on state governments, in colonial governments, on town councils. They knew what it was like to live among their constituents, and so they had faith in people who were engaged in that process. That's why they gave you that power. Some of this has been discussed today, but you'll hear arguments. The only argument ever given against the idea of a convention of states is that the convention will run away. Now, you heard some discussion about that today. And they'll propose amendments they're not authorized to propose. And in doing so, we'll lose our beloved Constitution. I think this is really important. Excuse me, stepping forward here for a moment. The question, the question that must be asked when we, we say we'll lose our beloved Constitution is what Constitution are you referring to? Many people in this room are probably carrying a pocket Constitution, 25 or 30 pages. You can carry it around with you in your breast pocket. But if you order the Constitution from the United States Government Publishing Office, the GPO, that's what you'll get. This was published in 2012. They, they do it every 10 years. They haven't published 2022 yet because they say they don't have enough money to do that, which I find ironic. This is with supplements over 3,000 pages. It weighs over 10 pounds, and it contains every single case ever issued by the United States Supreme Court telling us what that beautiful, small, concise, well-written document the United States Constitution means, over 3,000 pages. So when people say we need to protect our beloved Constitution, the question is, what is it that we're trying to protect? 
they're important, I would argue, seminal cases in here protecting the rights of United States citizens, and I think these are critical. But there are also decisions in here that have grossly expanded the power of the federal government in a way that the founders and the framers never imagined. It is, the government itself has grown beyond our wildest imagination of our framers and founders. In fact, we talk often about the debate between large and small government had between Jefferson and Hamilton. The Hamiltonian style of big central government, the Jeffersonian of agrarian society of a limited government. Hamilton and Jefferson agreed on this critical idea. They said that government has exclusive spheres of influence. And what they meant by that is a state, if a state is authorized to do something, then the federal government is not and vice versa. They would be stunned to see the overlap. I've been in 48 states in this great country in the last few years. I've been in the legislatures and most of them. The most common complaint I hear from Democrats and Republicans alike is if only the federal government would get out of our business and let us do what we know how to do. 60 to 65 percent of every state budget today is controlled in some way or another by the federal government. It's an outrage. Runaway convention coming back to this Constitution. First of all, it takes 34 states to call a convention, and those states must call a convention according to the same outline. That's why we have our outline, fiscal restraints on the federal government, term limits for federal officials, not just Congress, but potentially deep state bureaucrats. Fauci shouldn't be in the federal government for 50 years, for, for one. And then finally, limits on the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. It takes 34. How do we know for sure 34? And how do we know that's for sure a limitation? There have been over 400 applications to Congress for a convention of states. We've just never reached the two-thirds threshold. So that is de facto evidence that it takes the same limitation by every state. That's how we know there's a limitation in place. There's a lot of law around this. I hear a lot of confusion. People say, we have no idea what would happen at a convention of states. There's an entire legal treatise written on this called the Law of Article 5. If you're genuinely interested, and also if you're having trouble sleeping at night, it's a, it's a treatise you might want to read. But it'll fill you in on all the legal background, all the case law on, on this, all the precedent, all the history around this. There cannot be a runaway convention. This is something that was invented by people that don't like the idea of the American people rising up and doing what the founders intended for us to do. Specifically going to gun rights, sitting on our legal board of references, Charles Cooper, he's written an open letter in this regard. He is the number one Second Amendment leader in the United States of America litigated in protection of the Second on behalf of the NRA for over 30 years. He says the idea of a runaway convention affecting gun rights is outrageous. I'll close with this and then I'm happy to take questions. It's not a question of whether this is in the United States Constitution. It's there. You can look it up. It's not a question of whether the founders intended for us to use it because we have the record of the founders' proceedings there in 1787 on September 15th telling us exactly what they meant. We have the Federalist Papers telling us that the founders intended for us to use this if we came to a point where we felt like the federal government had gotten out of control. We have numerous people throughout American history, Eisenhower, Reagan, on forward into the modern era, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Ben Shapiro, Steve Dace, and on and on, legal scholars all across the country saying this is limited, safe, and now is the time to use it. And I'll close with this. This is not a partisan matter. This is not a fringe far right or far left matter. This is a matter for the American people. When pulled broadly all across the United States of America, over 66% of Americans, when they say they understand what this is, when they're told what it is, they are in favor. And here, here in your own home state of Ohio, over 100,000 people have now signed a petition asking you to support this resolution. So thank you for your time. I'm happy to take questions. Thank you for your testimony. Questions for the witness? Senator Craig? Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much for your testimony this morning, sir. Uh, how are the delegates chosen? Chosen? The delegates are chosen, Senator, in what I would describe as perfect federalism. In other words, each state, each state legislature itself, chooses how to choose their own delegates. So I've seen in the 19 states that have done this, uh, a lot of states after they pass the resolution are passing delegate selection legislation. So it will be up to your legislature. You could choose a certain number chosen by the House, some chosen by the Senate possibly a choice by the governor. It varies from state to state, but every state has the right to choose. Important to note, regardless of how many delegates are chosen, each state gets one vote at convention. It's a convention of states. Thank you. 
Governor. Senator Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your testimony, Mr. Meckler. Uh, just a couple of thoughts I want to share and get, maybe get your, yes. your, your views on it. Um, uh, again, I think, you know, if we want to look at the financial or the fiscal issue that uh, his, is proposed as part of this, uh, we have only to look at the level of debt that we have, as was pointed out earlier by the two senators, uh, in the inflation that results from this. You don't have to be a master's degree or a PhD in economics to understand that the two are connected and that we're headed down a path that is we may never be able to come back from if we don't get, get our arms around this. And um, I, I recall in, in terms of the Constitution itself, I remember back in 1996, I had the uh, pleasure of introducing Senator Bob Dole uh, at an event uh, where I live in Lake County. And I uh, was standing in the back behind the uh, curtain uh, waiting to introduce him as he was a candidate for president at that time. And he pulled out of his pocket, a, out of his uh, coat pocket, a copy of the Constitution. Not that one, because his pocket was not that big, but, um, and, and he gave me a 10 minute, I mean, I'm standing there with, you know, he was, I think he was a Senate majority leader at the time. I'm standing there with him, kept explaining to me, oh, he, and he is an American hero, as we all know, certainly suffered greatly for our democracy. And uh, he, he lectured me on, on the value of the Constitution and what a blessed document it is. Um, and, and he also talked with me about the principle of subsidiarity, which prior to that encounter, I really hadn't thought much about it, quite frankly, uh, which really begs to the local uh, issue. Subsidiary principle means that you bring things down to the lowest possible point. And we in state government fight federal policies all the time because they're making their decisions for the people of Ohio, and we object to that, and we sue the federal government in many, uh, in, in many areas. And, and I, think, I think we just have to, uh, you know, I, I agree with you, it's not a partisan issue here. It shouldn't be. Getting a hold of our federal government and making sure that enumerated powers don't get ex expanded, you know, decade after decade to a point where we are right now. Uh, that, uh, that this isn't a left or right issue, I think. This is a, uh, how do we maintain the integrity, the original integrity of the Constitution in the first place? by preventing its, uh, and going back and changing the expansionism that we have seen over the decades uh, in the document that governed. So just your, any thoughts or reactions? Sorry, that wasn't a question, but. Look, we're in 100% agreement. If you go back to the 1980s, there was actually a balanced budget amendment uh, convention proposed for that purpose. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine this at this point, and, and what I'm about to say sounds fantastical, but at that point we had $4 trillion in debt and we thought that was outrageous. Today we're over 30 trillion in debt. And by the way, we got within two states of calling a convention for a balanced budget amendment, and it was defeated by an alliance of people who were on the far left and the far right. right. It's, it's pretty amazing to think. And by the way, same people who oppose this today. So I think we can look back across history and say, thanks for nothing to those folks. And today, for the people who are making the same arguments, we have to ask the question, do you even understand your history? And I would close my comments on what you said with this. George Washington in his farewell address, which most people don't realize was never actually spoken. It was a written address. He said that if we ever found that we were in trouble constitutionally, that we should use the process found in the Constitution to make amendments. And he warned us against making amendments by what he called accretion. In other words, by not using the process, by having government just expand its own rights through legislation, which is essentially what we've done. You referred to the enumerated powers. There are originally only 17. I think they're innumerable at this point. You can't even possibly count them. What we're trying to do is not to change the Constitution. We're working to restore it to what the framers and the founders originally intended. Thank you. Senator Johnson, with a question or a comment. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, or thank both. You. Maybe. Or both, maybe. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. And, and uh, quite revelatory, the, the Constitution that you would get from the government. Uh, that's how they see it, huh? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's about 130 bucks, so it's, it's not cheap. And they're hard to get right now because they're out of print, which is ironic that they have trillions of dollars, but not enough to print the Constitution. <laughs> uh, I talk to a lot of people. Um, 
you know, and, and um, I was a state representative before, before I became a, became a state senator. And um, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, a lot of feeling powerless, a lot of despair, a lot of distrust for the federal government and even state government because we seem complicit in the process that allows the federal government to run rampant. And I have often said that in the, in the days of George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and, and all the amazing people that signed the Declaration of Independence, in the years that followed, the, the couple of decades that followed, they always assumed that the best people would represent the people closest to home. And indeed, you look at their example, they set the example. They didn't write it down. They intended the best people from a state to be right there in their communities, being city councilmen, uh, being uh, state legislators. Uh, a lot of those folks were participants in writing state constitutions. Uh, they, they wrote a very simple document that is so simple it took geniuses to write. Uh, a lot of people think that if you're going to write about something complex, the, the, the prose needs to be complex. And in fact, it's just the opposite. True genius is in simplicity. They wrote it so anyone could understand it. When we look at that gloom and despair that we have in our country, I always say there's nothing that we can't rectify if we go back to the original intent and use the document that we were gifted. And I truly believe we were gifted that document through the inspiration of God Almighty. And it's reflected in, in the writings and the attitudes of the people that wrote this. Can you tell me any reason why we shouldn't do this? Senator, I cannot think of a single reason why we shouldn't do this. Some people will say the time is not ripe. Uh, things are not bad enough. It's not dangerous enough right now. You know, I'm 60 years old. I'm probably not the oldest guy in the room, certainly not the youngest. I've lived to see a lot. 1980s, Ronald Reagan was my first friend. I could never imagine that we would be living in the times that we're living in right now. And so if not now, as, as the famous phrase goes, if not now, then when? If not us, then who? And if you go all the way back to Reagan, and one of the things that Reagan said that I consider most profound, he said a lot of incredible quotable things. This is not one of his most famous quotes, but I think it's important to me. He said back then, they say we live in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. And in that speech he goes on to describe that all around him, all around all of us, all around this room, sitting up on that dais today are American heroes. And I think this darkness and this gloom that you talk about, and I get a lot of that as a grassroots leader. I get emails every day telling me it's over, we've lost our country, we've lost our sovereignty. I know differently. And I know differently from my perspective for two reasons. Because I know you. I, I know legislators like McCulley and Ruley who are willing to take a stand. I travel to legislatures all over the country. Washington, D.C. makes me depressed. I go there, too. But I come to state legislatures and I have hope and I travel with the American people and I have hope. And for me, foundationally, it all rests on my faith and the Holy Father. And I will never not have hope because I've been saved by grace. And so for me and for the American people and the foundation of our country, I think that's the bedrock foundation. And if we turn back to the founding and what the founders believed, how this country was formed, I don't think there's anything we can't do. Thank you. Thank you for being with Thank us. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senators. Next, we have William Scott. Good afternoon. Let me proceed. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Cerno, Ranking Member Craig, and members of the committee. As the Ohio State Director for Convention States, I'm pleased to be here today representing more than 100,000 uh, folks in Ohio who have signed the petition. Those petitions went to you, and your office gets them every day, every week. Um, we're requesting you pass Senate Joint Resolution 4. And by way of background for myself, I'm a retired financial executive, having been a partner with an international accounting firm doing corporate and forensic auditing, um, corporate and forensic auditing, uh, consulting for bankrupt companies and um, litigation matters. I've also been a chief financial officer 
several insurance companies. With my background in financial, it should come as no surprise that of the three amendment areas we talked about today, the plank calling for fiscal restraints on the federal government is the one that concerns me the most. In my business life, I saw firsthand how good intention companies fail to survive due to a lack of fiscal discipline. They push their creditors and their lenders for more lines of credit and more debt, and their businesses just didn't warrant it. However, there's well-established process seeing failing or failed companies in the bankruptcy court. Agencies are rehabilitated, creditors take haircuts, uh, business gets new financial controls and management, or the patient is declared dead and gets buried. And the lenders, of course, and, and, the, and the other folks lose everything. None of those things or limitations or rules apply to our federal government because they can simply print more digital money and saddle our kids, our grandkids, and future generations with debts that can't be repaid. With the ability to use the digital printing press, there's no date certain that the U.S. would be forced by creditors to make hard choices or maybe face liquidation. Why can the feds do this? Why? Well, because historically, the U.S. has been the bedrock of world stability and strength, which allowed our debts to be backed by nothing more than the full faith and credit of the United States. That means you, me, our kids, and future generations are the ones that are expected to be productive enough to pay our debts with perpetually strong and growing economy. That historical position of strength also allows us to be the world's reserve prime currency. If we lose that status, the ability to print the digital money could be severely curtailed or stopped. And I submit to you that we could become Venezuela overnight. I'm not a bomb thrower. I'm not saying that for effect. I really believe that, that things go gradually until they don't. And there could be a cliff. And our financial house is not in order. So I, um, I, I say that uh, in all seriousness. The current national debt you often hear about is now 30, with a T, trillion, 30 trillion and growing. But as an accountant, I can tell you an additional real unrecorded number that's more than five times that, a staggering 150 trillion, when you add something called unfunded liabilities. These are future obligations, mainly consisting of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, for benefits already earned or promised to citizens, but are not yet payable. This is known as accrual accounting under general, which most large businesses follow and need. But our federal government accounts for its revenues and expenses mostly on a cash basis, just like a small family business might or the corner dry cleaner. Our federal government uses the same accounting. They do not include these enormously large unfunded liabilities in our official national debt. In the last 65 years, our federal budget has been balanced only a few times and not in the last decade. Instead, our go-along to get-along leaders in Washington fool themselves and us with something called continuing resolutions that allow Congress to simply keep spending at the same levels as in the prior year, thus kicking the debt can down the road and, and not balancing a budget. These fiscal problems cannot solve, be solved by electing more responsible or good people. Because if you put these good people in a broken system, they will and have continued to fail and not be responsible. This is a structural problem of the federal government, structural. It's not personnel mostly, it's mostly structural. So with this structural problem, our government has just gotten too big and too unaccountable. And that's why I strongly support some series of uh, common sense amendments to the U.S. Constitution that would restore fiscal responsibility and allow federalism to once again be the way we govern ourselves by returning power to you, the states. And as you all know, the states must balance their budget, right? So in closing, I'd like to ask you to consider two things, if you would, please. Um, you're going to hear testimony in your next series, your next round, um, with the opponents of COS. And I'd like you to consider two things. One, do these opponents have unstated reasons for wanting the status quo, such as protecting pet projects or programs that depend on grants or other types of federal handouts? Is their organization fundraising by keeping their members continually feared 
fearful of so-called risky Article 5 changes of the Constitution. Secondly, do these opponents offer any solutions to the problems of a, of a runaway federal government? And if so, are those solutions actually in the Constitution? Like Article 5 is actually in the Constitution. Um, or are they merely coming up with ideas that are cobbled together and selectively interpreted from other documents and writings of a few founders found outside of the Constitution? You should come to realize that the opponents of a Convention of States do not offer constitutional solutions, but mainly something called FUD. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I ask you not to fall for FUD. It's an emotional marketing strategy that businesses have used rather successfully since the 1960s to sell against their competitors. In these difficult times, we need uh, constitutional actions with the courage of conviction, not fear. So please pass SJR 4 onto the full Senate for a vote, and let's make Ohio number 20, and uh, I, I ask for your vote. Thank, thank you. you for your service to Ohio, and thank you for allowing me to testify today. Yeah, we appreciate your testimony and your work on this important issue. Are there questions for this witness? Senator Serino. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you uh, for your testimony, um, Mr. Scott. Um, have you, uh, have proponents, thought about, just to play, sort of play devil's advocate here? Sure. Uh, there will be, and again, I support what we've been talking about, certainly, but uh, there will be clear opposition to this. And should mm -hmm. it succeed and the convention actually occur, um, have you thought much about how you're going to counter the rather significant influence of social media billionaires, uh, people like uh, uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock, who was <coughs> using his business uh, position to, uh, to uh, forge policy, uh, companies like Disney and Coke who are chiming in all the time on things other than shareholder value uh, that they should be focusing sure. on. There's going to be, there will be significant uh, support for keeping the status quo, as you just mentioned here. So uh, have you thought much about how, how that would, because those kinds of things could, with their tremendous influence, possibly lead to a convention going in a direction that we all don't want it okay. to go to. So, Okay. Well, I have some personal opinions. I'll, I'll give you mine. And uh, Mark Meckler here, I know, has been thinking about this for forever and might have a few thoughts to say as well. But if he was reference made to earlier that uh, delegates would be sent there by the states. And the states are the ones who delegate. They know what the vetting process will be. They might have former uh, House reps. They might have former senators. They might have former judges. They might have some current people. It all depends on what the current legislature wants. And, and they could have uh, average citizens. They could have a school teacher. Whatever they want, they'll have a delegation. But they're going to vet these people. They're going to vet them. They'll make sure that they, they believe in the resolution. Your resolution here in the Senate is four pages. Very, very simple to read and understand, and, and the plank is in there. And they will have to swear an allegiance to, to what they're sent to do under agency law. Um, they have to represent who sent them. And they would not send them there to be influenced by billionaire tech people or come out in the parking lot and I have a bag of money for you. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I worry more about what happens like that in the parking lots of Washington, D.C. So <laughs> I think these people are going to be very honorable. They're going to be selected by uh, people that you select. Maybe you have a joint committee between the House and the Senate, and you put a committee together and you decide what type of people. You're going to send honorable people there. Now, every state is going to have, as Mark said, the, the number that they want. They might have three. They might have five, whatever. Uh, could some of those people be approached by, by people? Sure, but I don't think they're going to they're going to fall for that. They know that they're being watched back in their home capitals in Columbus. This thing will be bigger than ten Super Bowls. It'll be publicized on um, C-SPAN or whatever the, the platform is at the time. We're going to be watching this like a hawk. I mean, I will. It'll be more exciting than the Super Bowl. I'll tell you that. And uh, I don't think any people are going to, to to be able to be corrupted if that's what you're asking. But it's, it's a great question, and to be honest, I really trust those folks more than I do the, uh, the people that are stuck in a broken system in Washington, D.C. Thank you. And I don't disagree, but if the Bengals are in the Super Bowl, I... <laughs> Amen. I'm Amen. sort of appreciative of that. Yes. Um, seeing no further questions, appreciate your work on this Thank issue. Thank you very much. 
next we have uh, Heidi Workman. Uh, Heidi, thank you for being with us today. And I should say for my northern Ohio folks, my goodness, if by some miracle the Cleveland Browns ever made it to a Super Bowl, <laughs> that would be something to celebrate. Thank you for having me today. Chairman Peterson, Vice Chairman Serino, Ranking Member Craig and members of the committee, thank you for your service to the citizens of Ohio and for the opportunity to express my support for the Convention of States Movement. I would like to take a moment to discuss the trajectory of America and why calling a Convention of States is so urgent. Two years ago, we watched in horror as COVID hit American shores and the greatest free nation in the world was brought to its knees. At that time, we witnessed a global pandemic <clears throat> that the federal government ultimately used to seize our constitutionally protected right to pursue happiness. The decision to shelter, mask, vaccinate, and isolate is not the government's decision to make. It's ours and ours alone. In those moments, America's Constitution was overruled by a governing elite, and they have no intentions to stop their egregious accumulation of power and authority over us. In just five days, the United States, at the initiation of the Biden administration, will join 194 other nations in Geneva at the World Health Assembly to sign over authority of pandemic response to the United Nations. At that time, the World Health Organization will obtain the, the power to declare international health emergencies, seizing domination over sovereign countries, and facilitating the rise of what many would call the New World Order. When this happens, the concept of sovereignty will be obsoleted in the name of global emergency. As this develops, we must understand that there can be no independent nations, no American constitution, and no true freedom for the people of the world. To make matters worse, anything can be considered a threat to our health. I joined the Convention of States movement because I knew that it was the only legal, peaceful, and powerful organization in the country that could stop this tyrannical federal government. I could no longer sit by and watch my children's future be destroyed on my watch. The Convention of States is the way for the people to say we've had enough. United under one movement with our faith in the Almighty, we can reverse course. But state legislatures across the country must take immediate action to accelerate this process before the people and the state to circumvent tyrannical rule through Article 5. The convention, when called, would serve as little more than a glorified drafting body to propose amendments to the U.S. Constitution that limit the power of the federal government and hold it accountable to we, the people. When 34 states support this movement, a national discussion can occur with the brightest minds in the country to consider solutions to stop the, to stop the government's accumulation of power. The states are responsible for choosing the commissioners and overseeing their actions at a convention. Later, it is the state's responsibility to ratify any amendments that come out of the convention. That places the entire authority of this process in your jurisdiction. The Article 5 process delivers to each of you and all of us an opportunity to save America. The time has come to use it. The Declaration of Independence states that to, to secure the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Today, we must rise with a united voice to declare that the federal government and unelected elites no longer have our authority to threaten and seize our God-given right to live free. In an era of uncertainty, out of the Convention of States movement will rise hope, opportunity, and renewed unity. We are a part of the resistance, and we are taking a stand to restore this nation back to the principles of federalism the Founding Fathers gave us in the U.S. Constitution. We place in your hands our trust that you will do the same. In closing, I had asked my daughter if she would mind if I shared with you some artwork that she developed this year in her classroom. <clears throat> she is in third grade, and her art teacher requested that all third graders develop and paint a self-portrait. <clears throat> so I would like to share that with you, 
and with the crowd, if that, if you don't mind. So the first chance that I had to see this at the school, it was plastered with all the other third graders on the wall of the foyer at the school. And what I saw in this picture and on that wall was a group of children who had no voice. I ask that you accelerate this process and move it onto the Senate floor so we can continue the process of saving this country and getting the federal government out of our schools. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. Questions for the witness? We appreciate you being with us. Appreciate your daughter coming and you're sharing her artwork. Uh, next, we have Tony Kruger. Um, Mr. Kruger, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I do agree with you about the um, Super Bowl, and I will be talking to Bill about his derogatory comment on the Bengals Super Bowl. <laughs> Chairman Peterson, Vice Chair Serino, Ranking Member Craig, and members of the committee, thank you for allowing me to express my support for SJR4. My name is Tony Kruger. After receiving my BS degree, I spent my entire career in quality assurance at cosmetic, drug, and medical device companies. SJR4 is not like any other issue you face. It favors no group, does not impact state budgets, activities, or concerns. It's a national, nonpartisan, governmental activity, not a political one. It's simple to understand and straightforward to execute. It is the most important resolution you must pass. Unlike normal legislation, constitutional amendments are meant to last hundreds of years. You have already heard testimony about the three topics for which proposed amendments to the Constitution will be created. It's obvious that the topics are extremely important to the preservation of our Constitution. To do the right thing at the wrong time is wrong. We must act. We must now time it. There is both a product and a process. The tops to be addressed are the product. Allow me to explain the process. To borrow from Thomas Jefferson, I find these truths to be self-evident. Article 5 of the Constitution stands alone and is equal to the Constitution's six other articles. Article 5 requires Congress to perform duties unlike those specified in Article 1. Thus, constitutional congressional powers in Article 1 are irrelevant to the Article 5 amendment process and have no influence over it. Congress does not set the rules a convention of the states. The responsibility to preserve and power to change the Constitution rests entirely with the state's legislatures. Article 5 specifies two ways to propose amendments, first by Congress or second by the state's legislatures using their appointed delegates. Article 5's critical step is ratification, not proposal. The three-quarters requirement for amendment ratification ensures only proposals accepted overwhelmingly by the people will become law. Both methods of proposing amendments are important. Clause 1 states Congress will propose amendments this is an expedient way to address needed change. Clause 2 allows state legislatures to define issues requiring amendment proposals. 
they vet, appoint, and provide commissions directly to their delegates for a convention of the states. Without Clause 1, many of the changes which have been made to the Constitution would have been difficult, but still possible using Clause 2. Only Clause 2 of Article 5 is critical to the longevity of the Constitution. Without it, Congress could prevent essential changes by simply failing to act. An Article 5 Convention of the States has never been used to propose amendments to this Constitution. The intellectual diversity and patriotism of the state's delegates will far exceed that of our present Congress. That wouldn't be too hard. The right thing to do is pass SJR 4. The right time is now. If state legislatures fail to use Article 5, Clause 2 soon, the Constitution will no longer exist 50 to 75 years from now. A prize fighter can never win with one arm tied behind his back. Our Constitution cannot continue to survive without Article 5, Clause 2. Oh, by the way, the 130th Ohio General Assembly approved the exact same COS process when it passed the Balanced Budget Amendment Resolution in 2013. Thank you for your attention. Any questions? Thank you for your testimony. Are there questions for the witness? We have no questions for you. Thank you very much for your testimony and for bringing it forward. Thank you. Uh, that concludes uh, what we have on our agenda. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.